Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. We're in this series called Identity. It's a series out of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. It's kind of what we're studying. And it's important for us to understand a little bit of background, but here's the reason why. We desperately want us all, life churchers, or lifers as as Josh called us, (laughs) Uh, that's that's terrible, lifers. It's not like we're in prison. Um, But anyways, uh, what we want more than anything else is that you would engage God's word. And that God's word would speak to you, challenge you, encourage you. That you would find, that you would find uh, answers for some of the questions you might have in life out of God's word. But that you'd also find peace. You'd find uh, satisfaction and encouragement through God's word. Uh, but I think oftentimes what happens is that we are reading God's word and we're like, I don't know what's going on. Like you're just reading God's word and... It's like, I don't understand it, you know. And so contextually, it's important for us to understand a little bit about, about God's word. Because I know right now we're reading in Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 1 can, can be somewhat of a complicated chapter to read, at least. I mean, it's, got, it's very clear what Paul is trying to say. But it can be a very complicated chapter to read. That we might tend to read it and just pass right past it, right? And so I want to give you a little bit of a context about um, Ephesians. So around the year 52 AD, the Apostle Paul left the city of Corinth. Um, He had been in Corinth for about a year and a half. He leaves the city of Corinth, and he heads to the city of Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were a couple in the New Testament. You read about in the New Testament. They were evangelists and and, uh, teachers and that. And so they go to Ephesus. Ephesus is a magnificent city. It's It's a big city for that time. It's second only to the to to the city of Rome. Rome is like this like the, the jewel of the whole empire, right? And Ephesus would have been close, a close second. And so they go to Ephesus basically to start a church, to plant a church. Maybe that's not the language that they were using back in that day. More, it was more about just proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ, proclaiming that he was God, that he's Savior, that he's the one that can actually satisfy our souls. And so they go to Ephesus to start this church while, while he... The Apostle Paul spends probably about three years or three and a half years in the city of Ephesus, not, not contiguously. He, he, um, he would go, he went on his second missionary journey, he also went on his third missionary journey, but the accumulation of the time that he spent in Ephesus was about three to three and a half years, okay? And so this is what they do. They go and they start this church. Now, I want you to imagine, we're reading out of Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to imagine a person in the New Testament at that time period, because like I said, we can look at the scriptures and it could be just like theoretical language for our lives that we try to figure out how to apply it to our everyday life, right? And sometimes the best way to apply it is to see it through the eyes of somebody that was actually there. Now, I don't know if this person was actually there, but I'm going to ask you to use your imagination of someone sitting in this house church in Ephesus and they receive this letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, let's imagine a young girl that's sitting in this group. She's 14 years old. Um, let's call her Nakusha. Okay. And so Nakusha, her identity was established very young. She, uh, she was born in the city of Ephesus. 
And when she was born, they brought her to her father and they laid her at her father's feet. This is very customary. So they laid her at her father's feet. The father had a choice to make. The choice was between, was either pick up the child, name the child, choose the child as his own, or get up and walk away. And if he got up and walked away, what would happen essentially was he was rejecting that child and that child would be taken out probably out into the woods and left to die. This was a custom of that day. It's what would happen. And so in Nakusha's case, the father, she was laid at his father's feet and the father, after maybe a few minutes looking at her, gets up and walks away and rejects her as his daughter. She doesn't know why. She doesn't know if it's maybe because she cried too much. She doesn't know if maybe it's because the dad wanted a boy and not a girl. And so not having a boy, he's rejecting it. We don't really know. She doesn't really know. But it was common in those days. And like I said, typically what would happen is that they would take the baby out into the woods and, and just let the wild animals um, eat, the, you know, eat the baby. Um, I know it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But this is true. This is, if you go back to early, early church history, you'll find that orphanages... W- kind of began as, a, as not formalized, but from the early beginnings of an orphanage, it's Christians who would go out into the woods and rescue these children and raise them as children in their own homes. And so in Nakusha's case, though, they didn't drop her off in the woods. Instead, they took her to the commercial center in Ephesus to a place called the Agora, which is like this huge shopping center. You could buy anything at this, at this huge shopping center, including people. And so this little child, this infant, is sold to some person out there to be a slave. And so she's raised as a slave. By the age of 12, she has become one of the many temple prostitutes in that city. That was one of the uh, things that were, people would go to Ephesus for was the temple prostitution that occurred. And so she's there, that's what she does, that's what she, how she's identified. She, her identity is, I'm a child who's been rejected by my father, sold as a slave, and I now sell my body. <clears throat> Around the age of 14, she's probably hanging out outside of the, uh, the amphitheater. It's a huge place, 25,000 people could sit in this amphitheater. Maybe there was some, you know, some performing some performers there. We don't know maybe what was happening, but she's hanging outside and waiting maybe for customers when suddenly she hears some commotion and, and there's a crowd moving and so she makes her way through the crowd and as she gets through the crowd, there's this guy, crazy guy, preaching. And he's saying, he's talking about this person named Jesus who he calls the Son of God who has come to set people free and he says that basically this is the person that their souls have longed for all of their lives. Well, this is, this is tantalizing for her. It's interesting to her. Nakusha's listening in. When suddenly somebody comes to her, and maybe it's Priscilla, and says, hey, would you like to know, and introduces herself, and says, would you like to know more about Jesus? Nakusha's probably a little bit surprised because, I mean, she's a temple prostitute. Like, doesn't she know? Doesn't she know who I am? Doesn't she know what I do for a living? Why would she want to even talk to me, especially when it's in this context of some God who cares and loves? But Nakusha feels the love of God, feels cared for, feels invited, feels welcome. And so, you know, she kind of starts joining this group. 
time passes, the Apostle Paul is gone. And one day after church, she's hearing that, that they're going to be doing something down by the river. They call it baptism. That they're going to go down to the river and they're going to be baptized in water. And, and she's heard about this and she's been hearing about being born again, being born again. And it sounds kind of strange to her, this whole idea of being born again. But, but deep inside of her, that's exactly what she's wanted. Because all she can, when you think about being born, all she can think about when she was being born was that she was rejected by her father. And so if she could just be born again and she could start new and start fresh, that would be amazing. And so she starts thinking in her mind, maybe I'll go get baptized. Maybe I'll be born again. But then as she's going in that direction, this little voice in her head says, it's not for you. You're damaged goods. You've made many, too, too many mistakes in your life. Nobody cares about you. You've been abandoned. Nobody wants you. And so those voices dominate her thinking and she caves into them and so she doesn't get baptized. Maybe a few weekends later, she's probably about the age of 20 by this time and she's on her way to this little group of people who gather in a home to talk about Jesus and she's on her way there and she sees that the place is crowded and everybody's talking and all excited. There's a lot of excitement in the air and, and she finds out that there's a letter from this guy who preached several years earlier there's a letter from him that he's, that's being addressed to the, to the church in Ephesus. Paul's in prison at this point, and he's writing from prison a letter to the Ephesian church. And when they start reading the letter out loud, suddenly Nakusha feels like, that's like he's speaking to me. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in church where you've gone to church and maybe the worship said or, or maybe the person preaching or saying something and you walked in, you say, how did he know? How did he know to talk about me? How did he know that that was exactly what I needed to hear? That's exactly what's happening to Nakusha. Like God is speaking to her through this letter by the Apostle Paul. And so what I, maybe this is what she heard that day. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, and I'm going to call it Nakusha's version. It is the text, actually, but I've just changed a couple pronouns just so it's more relative. <clears throat> Even before he made the world, God loved you, Nakusha. Can you imagine her hearing those words? God loved you, Nakusha. And chose you in Christ to be holy and without, without fault in his eyes. This is so hard. Let me find that without fault in his eyes. I lost it. Is it? Go up. There it is. Here it is. Thank you. Without fault in his eyes. Can you imagine that? Like she's grown up all her life wondering, what did I do wrong to deserve this? I am guilty. I am full of fault. And yet she hears that God is from the very beginning called you to be without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt you as his daughter through Jesus Christ. And so what she heard that day is that she had been redeemed. She'd been made new. Her sins had been forgiven. I mean, her whole life had been defined by that moment when she was born, when her father rejected her. And now, now her heavenly father has, has, not, has scooped her up has embraced her, has loved her, and has said, you are mine. And now there's a voice in her head that's more true to her than anything else in her life that might be true. Like it's true that she was abandoned. It's true that she was rejected. It's true that she was not loved. But what is even more true 
is that there is a heavenly father who has loved her, who has adopted her, who has cared for her, who has forgiven her. And some of you are like Nakusha. You're living with that old identity that needs to be put to death in your life. Like it even happened here this morning. Like you walked in this morning, there's a label on you. Nobody can see it, right? There's a label on you. Abandoned by my father. Rejected by my mother. Cheated on by my spouse. Betrayed by a friend. Or a million other things that stick to us. And that's how we identify And so you you don't like it. You feel forced to live in that identity. It's not something you did. It was something that was done to you. And so what Paul is telling us is that Jesus wants to give you a brand new identity that comes through Christ and Christ alone. Now, the name Nakusha that I just mentioned, you might guess that it's not really a first century Roman name. It's actually from India, from the Marathi language. And it means unwanted. Like, especially in villages in, in Maharashtra, state of Maharashtra, they will, they will when they, if they, a girl is born, they don't want them, and they just let them go. And they call them Nakusha. They're not wanted. In fact, I've got here this young girl who, her name is Nakusha, or that's what she identified as. She's a, in a brothel in Calcutta, India. Not wanted. Not wanted. But Christ comes to change that identity. Now what I love about this, there's a ministry called Project Rescue in India that what they do is that they find the Nakushas out there. And they take them in and they love on them and they care for them and they raise their children and they do all kinds of amazing work in their lives. And then there's this moment where they'll have this ceremony. It's a naming ceremony where they no longer live with the name Nakusha, which means unwanted in Marathi, but instead they take on a brand new name. That's what the church does in India. And it's because they understand that our identity is not the things that we've done. It's not in how we were born or anything. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. This is what Paul is trying to communicate So that, that word identity comes from the word identical, okay? Identical. Identity, identical. You understand that, right? And essentially what identical means, the definition of identical is that which is the same, that which always, always is the same. So identity comes from identical. So the question that you and I need to wrestle with as we think about identity is, what is always the same in our life? What never changes, what never changes, whether you're, you know, old or young, what never changes? You see, in our culture, a lot of our identity is put on things that are shifting, that change. And so if your identity is in your appearance, that's terrible because it's going to change. I promise, I'm, I'm a witness to that. Some of you know me long enough that you remember when I had dark hair. And I don't have dark hair anymore. It changes. Like you, you used to say, he used to be good looking. No, <laughs> right? <clears throat> so if, you're, if your identity is in 
how you look is shaky ground. If your identity is in your net worth, that's shaky ground. If it's because you think that if you could just accumulate, 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 you're going to be good, you're going to be safe, and you feel good about yourself because you've accumulated and accumulated accumulated, well, the market may crash. You may lose it all. Or you, like in the scriptures, there's a terrible soul where this guy accumulates, accumulates, and then he dies. <laughs> and how good was that? Or maybe your identity is in your position or your title. And again, those things all change. They're not stable. You cannot build your life on them. I was reading this week that there are 72, 72 recognized gender identities. I'm not talking about gender here today. But it just floored me when I thought about that. And I kind of read through the list a little bit. 72 different gender or recognized gender identities. And what it tells me is that we live in a world that's constantly telling you, this is who you are. This, no, maybe this is who you are. No, 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 no. Maybe, maybe this is who you are. No, no, no. Maybe this is who you are. And, there's, and that number is growing and growing and growing. And we're just talking about gender. Too many, too many of us also put our, our identity in the things that we do. Right? And so, the question to ask is, what is always the same? What is always the same about you? What is always true about you, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, married or single? What is always true about you? And this world's going to throw all kinds of things at you that might be somewhat true, but one thing that, one thing that never changes is what God says about you. That's the truest thing about you is what he says about you. And so Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus to help them kind of understand their identity. And he wants them to understand that they are secure and st their identity is secure and stable, right? That's what he says in verse 13. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Because who are you? Who are we? We're sons and daughters, right? So we get an inheritance because we're sons and daughters, right? Um, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now he uses the word marked. Uh, we can go back to the previous line. Go back, well, yeah, he uses the word marked here, which can be translated as identified. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is you have been identified. You, you belong, your name is on, his name is on you. You have been marked which is the seal, you know, it talks about this, this, this seal, which is the Holy Spirit. God identifies you as his. Now, we don't always walk around saying, I belong to him, but I do belong to him. If I'm in Christ, if I follow, am I a follower of Jesus Christ? I belong to Christ. I am his. And you know what? Every angel in heaven and every demon in hell knows that because you've been marked by the Holy Spirit. You belong to Christ. Then in verse 15, he begins to pray for them. He says, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped. Like there's this reputation that they have, right? He, he's, he's excited about that. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. So Paul's gonna pray that they would understand their identity. And I think part of the reason why Paul prays this is because he understands that we tend to put our identity in our behavior, the things that we've done in the past, the things that we're doing now, good or bad. Like we feel good about ourselves when, when our behavior is good and then we, we're ashamed when our behavior is bad. And Paul understands that this is a lie. 
that defining ourselves by what other, by, by what other people think about us, the things that we do, is not good. It's a lie of the enemy. I mean, Paul knows this because he grew up in a system like that. And some of you grew up in a system like that. You know, a religious system where, you know, you, you, were, you were identified as good because you could follow all the rules. Because you could live by the rules in Scripture. Oh, bad because you kind of slip up on the rules. And so you learn very early on that behavior is how I should identify that I need to act right, and I need to do right, right? And Paul knew this. I mean, Paul, Paul, that was part of the system that he grew up in. In fact, he identifies himself as having, having been a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like he was of this religious elite group that they were called Pharisees, and he was head and shoulders above them. Like he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Like he, this guy had it together, Right? And there was all these things that Pharisees would do. Like they would go out in public. They had these long robes and they'd go out in public and they would pray out loud. And, and it was all just a show. But they'd pray out loud so that, you know, they could be seen as, well, super spiritual or religious or whatever. One of the things that they had, one of the things that the Pharisees uh, wore, they wore these things called phylacteries, okay? These little, little leather boxes that um, they would put scripture in it because the, the, the scriptures say, says, you know, um, meditate on me, on, on my word, day and night, right? So the idea was, we're going to put scripture on this, we're going to put that phylactery over our forehead, which means my mind, so I'm meditating on, on his word day and night, and on my forearm, because as I'm walking, it's ahead of me, it's going before me, right? That's the idea behind the phylactery. And so they would wear these phylacteries, and it was a way, you know, very proudly, they'd wrap it up, and it was ornate, and it would be on their arm, and it'd be on their forehead, and they're just walking around. And then one day, they show up at temple or the synagogue, and some guy walks, some other Pharisee walks in, and man, his phylactery has been supersized. Like, whoa, do you see the phylactery on that guy? It's larger. It can hold more scripture, Right? And it turns into this competition between them. So they were like enlarging the phylactery so as to be seen by people as more spiritual. In fact, this is what Jesus says about them, specifically in regards to that. Matthew 23, 5, he says, they're always worried about what people think. They're always worried about what people think. Everything they do is based upon what people see. <clears throat> Listen, our culture is discipling us to care a lot about what people think. Social media is, I mean, I think that's why social media exists. I know that social media got started for good intention, connecting people, but nowadays, what's social media about? I post the best parts of me on social media, and I hope that people will like it. And the more likes I get on social media, the better I feel about myself because people like me. Well, of course, it's only a little piece of me, right? It doesn't, it's not my whole life, but it's just a little piece of me. And so we care a lot about what other people think. This idea that our worth is found in the labels that people give us. And Paul says, look, this is, this is who you are. You're not that. You're not what people say. You're not the things that you do or didn't do. You're not the sins of your past. This is who you are. You are who God says you are. This is essentially the message that Paul is trying to communicate to us. I remember a couple weeks ago I talked about Mrs. Beck, my fifth grade teacher, and how, if you remember, you know, rubbing her hands through my hair and 
say, I know, I don't know. I think he looks like Elvis Presley, you know, <laughs> when I was feeling very insecure. <clears throat> and um, Mrs. Beck was this Hawaiian lady, and she, she was just precious. You know, she'd do this game. I don't even remember what it's called. It's a, it's a Polynesian dance kind of game where you have these long sticks, and you would tap them and close, and somebody would dance in the middle, you know, and you just kind of, I don't want to try it in here. I might fall. But you don't want to talk about it, right? Uh, so they, they played this, It was this game, right? And what she would do is she would she'd make teams. She'd make two teams, and she'd call them like Samoan warriors and the Tahitian dragons, you know? And, and then she would call us all up, and she'd put these labels on our, on our chest, and she would give us a title. She'd say, this is what your role is on your team, that you're the, you're, you're the Samoan warriors. This is what your role is, you know? And she'd make faces and stuff that we were supposed to be making. And so my name, I remember when we were playing this game, my name was Chief. So she labeled me as Chief. Others were like beautiful or fast or creative or, or talented or whatever. There's all kinds of different names she would give people. Back then, I didn't at all think about it very much. I felt good about being called Chief, but I didn't think about it very much. But as I've been working on this message, I just realized the power of what she was doing. She was trying to speak identity into us. I, I don't know a lot about Mrs. Beck. I can't tell you that she was doing this intentionally or what. But she was trying to speak positive identity into us. She was trying to help us see ourselves, not with all the other labels that we put on ourselves. Because in this world, it's a lot easier to do that, isn't it? Right? It's a whole lot easier to come up with a whole bunch of other labels like loser or incompetent or stupid or, or abandoned or no good or good for nothing. Those are the labels that we tend to take on very easily. In fact, those labels are the more sticky kind of labels. They just stick on us and they don't want to come off. And we try, we try, we try. We just can't take them off. And so the church in Ephesus, this is what they were dealing with. They were dealing with this identity that they now have in Christ, but it's being contested because of where they come from. Ephesus, this terrible hedonistic city. And so Paul prays for God's identity over them. He prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, which says in verse 16, he says, I'm not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that, God, that the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul is saying, you need, your eyes need to open up. You need to open up to who God says you are. You need to open up to the labels that God has for you. Not the labels that are out there, the labels that God has for you. That your eyes would open up. You have wisdom and revelation so that you may know him, he's talking about Jesus, so that you may know him better. Now this word know, the apostle Paul could have used, there's two different words he could have used. He used, used the word oida, which is kind of like an academic knowledge. It's like, it's knowledge that I get out of books, learn stuff, you know, it's cognitive knowing, it's academic, it's intellectual. But instead he uses another word, it's the word gnosko, which is a different kind of knowing. It's knowing by personal experience or by, by intimate interaction. So what Paul's telling us is that your identity as followers of Jesus is not found in, 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 in knowing more about Jesus, which I think is where the church is at, right? We want to we academically know about Jesus, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is intimately knowing Jesus. It's not about knowing more about him. It's about knowing him. Now, let me give you an example. I'm a husband to Christy. I've been married for 34 years. And, um, and I know my wife. 
When I say I know my wife, I'm not talking about I know her social security number and I know her blood type. I do know that stuff too, but that's not what I'm talking about. See, I know things about her, not because she's told me, but because I've spent time with her. I've been with her for a long time and I know her. Like I know that if we're traveling, we check into a hotel room, I know which side of the bed she wants to sleep on. She's never told me, but I just know. And if I get it wrong, I definitely will know, you know? I mean, <laughs> because she has a preference for the side of the bed that she's gonna sleep on. And it's generally related to closer to the window. I know my wife that if she says to me, um, would you like to go to Dairy Queen? What that means is I wanna go to Dairy Queen. <laughs> and whether I want to or not, it means that she's gonna get a Heath Blizzard. Because I know my wife. And the same way it is with us in, in our relationship with Christ. Spending time in his word, in prayer, in worship. In doing so, we know him. We don't just know about him. We know him. And Paul says, I, want, I pray for wisdom and revelation that you will get to know him. Know him. Part of understanding your identity is knowing Christ. Knowing him. Knowing who he is. Knowing what he is all about. It's part of you understanding your own identity. Paul also shows that our identity is revealed in and through God's power. In verse uh, 19, he says, I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. Notice, he says, I pray that you will understand the, great, the incredible greatness of God's power. <clears throat> For us who believe, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. And notice, he doesn't say, I want you to have God's power. He knows that he's speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. He knows they already have God's power. What he's praying for is that they will understand that they have God's power. Too many of us walk around, we have, we have the arsenal of heaven behind us, and we walk around as if, I, you know, the wind can blow me over. He's praying that we will understand God's power. It's a power that can set people free. And it can set all of us free. It's like if you, as you understand you're a son, you're a daughter, you understand that you have his power. And this power, like I said, can bring the dead back to life. That's why he makes this analogy here. The greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power. No, there's a power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the power that's available to you. All right? And that power can destroy any false identities that want to latch on to you. I love the last verse here. I'm kind of finish up here. Verse 23, it says, and the church, this is the final verse in that chapter, and the church is his body. It's made full and complete by, by Christ. Um, this word by is actually, it, Paul uses interchangeably. He uses in or by. He can do it both ways. It means the same thing. Full and complete by Christ or in Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Paul, this is identity language again. Paul's saying, listen, you want to know who you are? You're full and complete in Christ. You're full and complete in Christ. See, the human problem is, the human problem is that there's an empty problem. Like when you're born, you're like a blank slate in many ways. You're an empty jar. And on that empty jar, there's a label that says, who am I? And whether it's 
It might be good. It may not be so good. Generally, the first people that get to put stuff in your jar are your parents. And sometimes they put good stuff in your jar. Sometimes they put not so good stuff in your jar. And so this is what happens. You begin to discover who you are by basically people investing and speaking into you. Right? But then what happens is that jar gets so filled with, with lies and garbage. And I think what Paul, if Paul was here, what he would say is, you know what, what you need to do is you need to take the lid off that jar, empty it out, and let it be filled with what God says about you. Now what I'm talking about is I'm not talking about a a problem outside, outside, out there outside in the world that those, those lost people, this is their problem. No, I'm talking about a problem that's actually inside the church. Because we have Christ, but we don't fully operate full and complete in Christ. And so maybe you walked in here this morning and you have some identity things that, you're, that are running through your head. You see, how I know who I am is understanding who he is. And so maybe you walked in this morning and you know, you're telling yourself this thing, I'm abused, I'm abandoned, I'm disconnected. And Jesus said, well, you know who I am? I'm the true vine. And in me, you're, you are connected. Maybe you walked in and you said, I'm hungry. I'm hungry and then dissatisfied. And Jesus says, you know who I am? I'm the bread of life. I completely satisfy. I'm lost. Jesus says, I'm the way. You might say, I'm confused. Jesus says, I'm the truth. You might say, I'm defeated. Jesus says, I'm victorious. You might say, I'm anxious. Jesus says, well, I'm the prince of peace. You might say, I'm broken beyond repair. Like you walked in here this morning, you, are a, you would label yourself as a Christian, but in your heart of hearts, you say to yourself, I am broken beyond repair. What has happened in my past is gonna define me from this day till I die. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the great Redeemer. I am the great Redeemer. I, I set you free. Listen, your identity, my identity is found in who he is. Not who people say we are. Not what our culture tries to label us with. It's only what Christ says about us. That's your identity. So as you know him, and you know who he is, you know who you are. I am... Um, <clears throat> If I ask the question, what was the first song you ever learned as a kid, like memorized? For me, it was uh, uh, Taking Care of Business by BTO. <laughs> that was my first song I remember. I remember. I mean, maybe there was one before that, but I don't remember. The one I remember is Taking Care of Business by BTO. And uh, I asked other people, and they, had, they came up with all, you know, depending on what year, that, you know, how old they were, how young they were, they had different, different songs, you know. Well, what's interesting is that I, I asked this week several people along the way, about what was the first song you can remember memorizing or knowing. And for those who were raised in church, those who grew up, you know, in a Christian community or, or raised in church, anybody want to venture off and guess what they... Jesus loves me, right? It's like every, you guys all said it in unison. Jesus loves me, right? Like there was a person that you, that when you were born, when you were young, you had this empty jar and there was a person, your parent or your grandparent that said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak into this person's life something that doesn't ever change. And that is Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. It breaks my heart that some of us and some of you probably grew up not hearing that. Like you might have heard the opposite. You might have heard that you're hated 
that you wish, they wish you were never even born. They, they wish you were not a part of the family. Maybe that's how you grew up. <clears throat> but what I want to tell you what is true about you is that Jesus loves you and that will never, ever change. So here's what we're going to do to close our services today. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you all to stand. Our campuses in Cedar Rapids and Wilton, you can stand as well. And what I want to do is I want to read a... It's going to feel a little hokey. You know, you're an adult. You're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm rich. Come on, Jesus, let me really... You might be feeling that way, but let me tell you, there's nothing more true than in your life than that. That's that Jesus loves you. And what we're about to do, you might think it's weird. There's a little book that uh, we used to read to our kids when they were young. Um, it, the title is called You Are Special by Max Lucado. Some of you might be familiar with it. And... Um, we would read that to them because it just was loaded with truth. And what I'm going to do here today, um, while you're standing, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. You can do that now in a lot of campuses in Cedar Rapids and Wilton. Close your eyes because I want you to imagine something. So all eyes close and open up your, your eye of imagination. I want you to imagine being a child again. I want you to imagine walking into your home and going into your childhood bedroom. Maybe for some of you, that's not a very pleasant um, memory. And so I want you to imagine going to a place that you felt comfortable, that you felt wanted, that you felt loved. And as I read this, I want you to receive that truth about you. I want you to internalize it. Let it be true about you. I think we need to hear this, so here we go. Long, long ago, God made a decision, a very important decision, one that I'm really glad he made. He made the decision to make you. And the same hands that made the stars made you the same hands that made the canyons made you, and the same hands that made the trees and the moon and the sun made you. That's why you are so special. You are his creation. You were made by him. That's why you are so special. God made you. God chose you, and he chose to make you in a very special way. He made your eyes so, you could, so they could twinkle. He made your mouth so you could smile. He made your laugh so you could giggle. God made you like no one else. If you, if you looked all over the world in every house, there would not be anyone else like you. No one with your eyes, no one with your mouth, no one with your laugh. You are very, very, very special. God made you. God chose you. God loves
all the campuses will sing. Apostle Paul saying, you are loved, you are wanted, you are cared for. And the question is, will we believe what is truer about us than what is true?